thank you all for joining. Good morning, good evening, good night uh, from wherever you are dialing in from. Um, we are very, very excited to have uh, you here today and very excited for the topic, um, which is a conversation with Phil Winley. Um, Phil has written a book called Learning Digital Identity. Many of you have already, I think, seen it, read it, bought it, which is awesome. Um, and so hopefully we'll learn a bit more about the book uh, between a conversation with him and uh, the uh, awesome Sam Curran. Thank you. Uh, I'm really grateful for um, to, to do this today. Uh, Phil and I go back. Um, he was my grad advisor when I was uh, pursuing a master's degree and, and was um, perhaps one of the only uh, professors at the university that would have been tolerant of me, and I'm grateful. Um, and uh, we've had a chance to work together in a variety of, of capacities and, uh, and discuss things, and, and I, I consider him a great friend. So I'm grateful for that. Um, Phil, is there any particular uh, elements of, um, of background that you wish our audience to know about you? I uh, keep bees. Phil does keep bees. The honey is delicious. And I have actually uh, more than once used a little bit of beeswax from Phil in my woodworking projects. And so that's been fun too. Um, Phil does keep bees. Um, uh, glad everyone's here today. Um, we, uh, in between all of the drawing stuff at the end, we'll likely have a, a room for a question or two if you're interested. And I've, uh, I've got some conversation topics to, uh, to bring up as well. Um, and so we should have a good discussion here today. Um, uh, so, Phil, I wanted to start off. Uh, so, your book, Learning Digital Identity, um, is uh, is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that you you include learning in the title. This isn't just a book about it necessarily, but a guide to learning. Um, and you you take uh, readers through a journey. Uh, you start uh, with a metaphor of a bundle of sticks, and you make it all the way to to generative identity at the end of the book. Uh, can you describe a little bit of the journey that you take folks on as they read? Yeah, so the, like you said, the, the book is focusing on learning digital identity and, and specifically not learning some um, specific aspect of digital identity, but my hope is that it's a uh, introduction to the field, right? That after reading the book, people will understand not just, you know, oh, here's what OAuth is, or, you know, those kinds of facts, as important as those are, but understand the purpose of digital identity, why we do it, its place in um, in the technical ecosystem, and even broader than that, its, its role as a foundational element for our digital lives, right? And so I, I frequently come back to the idea of living effective lives online. And by that, I mean that that you can do online what you can do um, in, in the physical world, um, you know, within reason. Obviously, there are things we can do as physical beings that we probably never will be able to do digitally. But leaving that aside, so, so the book starts with... Um, it, it, after some definitional work, it, it talks about the problems of digital identity right? and specifically what kinds of things make digital identity hard. And, and then there's a whole chapter on Kim Cameron's um, laws of identity, which I wanted to introduce early because I use them throughout the book as ways of analyzing specific identity technologies or practices uh, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of take it as an article of faith that the laws are correct. And I, I you know, I think we could probably have an interesting uh, session discussing that at IIW or something. But, but you know, the, the book essentially takes the laws as, okay, these are correct, and then uses them to analyze uh, various things. You know, I should note that Kim passed away within the last year. And, you know, he was, he was way ahead of his time. I remember the first IIW in 2005, um, Kim talked about the laws of identity because that's about the time he was formulating them. And I think all of us understood his words, but not many of us understood the ramifications of what he was proposing. Um, and, and now as, as we look at it, now more and more people are going, oh yeah, you know, you read Downham and the language is a little bit 
you know, it's not the same language we use, like directed and omnidirectional identity is what he calls public and peer um, identifiers, right? So, so the language is a little different, but the concepts are all, I believe, spot on. So, uh, so fo following that, there's, you know, just some chapters that talk about various things that people need to know, even a chapter on cryptography, because I figure a lot of readers may not have a background in cryptography, and it's pretty difficult to do modern day identity without understanding, you know, how to use cryptography to do it. Um, and then, you know, just gets into the the basic ideas of what is authentication, authorization, and federated identity. Um, you know, I, I have an opinion, obviously, like most authors, and my opinion is that uh, self-sovereign identity, and I use that word uh, uh, on purpose, right? I don't call it decentralized identity. I don't call it, um, you know, user-centric identity, because I believe you can do all of those things without giving users autonomy. So, so the book definitely is headed towards self-sovereign identity. As you read through it, more and more of the, uh, of the um, discussion centers on that. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the last talking about generative identity, and I think maybe more than the generative ideas, which, which are important. I think it's interesting to think about why technologies are generative and how identity can be generative. You know, that chapter starts off with a discussion of two metasystems. Um, and so if you're not familiar with the idea of metasystems, um, you know, a meta system is a system for building systems. Um, so the internet is a communications meta system, right? It's not about exchanging email, although you can use it to exchange email. It's not about HTTP, although it can be used su to support HTTP. And so identity meta systems are the same way. Um, and, you know, I talk about the social login meta system that the one that's enabled by OpenID C, uh, OpenID Connect, um, and the SSI meta system, and compare those and contrast them using the laws of identity to to um, to talk about them. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that's maybe a little surprising about that is, in fact, it was a little surprising to me as I started to write about it is how well the social login meta system actually fares when you analyze it in the light of the laws of identity. It only is only missing a few things. Now, I think those things are critical. Like for example, social login meta system does not have the idea of directed identities or as we would call them peer identifiers. <clears throat> um, and so, it's only missing a few things, but those things have consequences. Um, you know, I think that's a good reason, for example, why um, why you won't catch banks using the social login meta system to build their identity systems. Um, and so and that's kind of where the book ends up is, you know, talking about SSI and why it has the kind of features we need in order to build identity systems that let people live in a digital world. So that's a, it's a fantastic outline. Um, and there's a couple of things that I want to come back to that you touched on. Um, what do you, uh, what would you consider the, the, the pre-qualifications for someone reading this book? What do you need to know before you read this book? Um, I don't think you need to know an awful lot. I don't, I don't assume very much. I mean, I, I do assume that you have at least a little familiarity with technical language and that sort of thing. But I pretty much start from the very basics, right? About talking what digital identity is and, you know, what is trust? And like I said, how does cryptography work? And, uh, you know, and so so I don't assume very much. I, th I think you could pretty much start with um, a general technical background. It doesn't mean you have to be a developer. You could be a product manager, even a CEO of a technical company. I, I think you'd do just fine. In in my early reading, uh, I found that your your definition work in the beginning to be very insightful. So if anyone is is uh, is maybe tempted to skip the beginning, I'd encourage you not to, in order to get some of those terms and those general things down and understand it in the context of the book. So that was really good. Um. So you brought up self sovereign identity, uh, of course, as a topic. 
Now, uh, Drummond Reed and a collection of others have written a book called Self-Sovereign Identity. And I happen to know that Drummond is is not upset about your book as he wrote the foreword for it. And so <laughs> and so I know he's not upset about that. Um, and uh, and so I was uh, I was curious um, uh, about your thoughts about how the books relate to each other and how they might uh, yeah. how they might be used together. Well, well like you said, um, Drummond and Alex's Self-Sovereign Identity book is a collection of chapters from different authors. And, and I think Drummond and Alex did a terrific job of kind of normalizing the voices of those authors. Um, but they, but the chapters, they, they, it is just about self-sovereign identity, whereas I'm trying to place self-sovereign identity within a larger you know, context of digital identity and how people do it today. Um, so there's not much contrast in the SSI book with how current systems work, whereas I do cover that. And, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a collection of different chapters, so they tend to be very detailed about the, what the author of that chapter was interested in. So I think they're both, you know, I, I contributed to uh, not a chapter, but an appendix to that book. And, you know, I, th- I think they're both good and people can get something different out of both of them. I agree. I actually appreciated uh, sort of the background uh beginnings where you where you started the book uh because it helped me to to sort of set a frame uh, for how i thought about things and and uh, and added some clarity to to some of the words that i use to describe concepts and things and so i think they're great companions um so you brought up a meta system mm-hmm. in in your in your overview um and it's interesting uh you described sort of a meta system as not as a system of systems if you will um, rather than one. And, and this strikes me as interesting because clearly I think we've demonstrated that it's almost impossible to build one system to rule them all, if you will, um, from an identity perspective. What, what kind of advantages can we as, a, as an industry, as a people gain from a meta-system oriented view of digital identity? Yeah. So, so, so one of the things that I make a point of in the book is that we don't build identity systems to manage identities. We build identity systems to manage relationships. And every relationship is different. My relationship with Amazon is different than my net relationship with Netflix, which is different than my relationship with Sam Curran and so on, right? So, so we all have, so we build these systems to create relationships. And so there's not going to be one identity system. In fact, there's going to be um, an identity system for every relationship type. And when you think about it, right, if you just if you just say that and don't know much about how, you know, or, or what kind of technology we can bring to bear on this problem, it's almost a hopeless statement, right, that you're you're never going to get out of having a different username and password with everybody and having a, a a user experience which differs i mean you know i'm sure everybody on this call notices this because we're all kind of in the identity space but but even you know even though my wife who is not technical at all couldn't describe what the problem is i see her frustration with you know, every website has a slightly different experience, right? Oh, it's, you know, you've got to put your username in and then you get to put in your password or, uh, you know, oh, this one insists on MFA or, you know, the passwords are all different. So so we essentially, you know, if you just say there's going to be a relationship for, I mean, there's going to be an identity system for every type of relationship. I mean, that's millions, right? And a typical person is probably going to have thousands of them. And that just, you know, makes it, just utterly hopeless. But, you know, if I go back to the analogy of the internet as a meta system, you know, using it as an analogy for what we want in, um, in a uh, identity meta system, I mean, one of the hallmarks of the internet is a relatively consistent user experience. Um, you know, and even if, and the internet is probably a little abstract to, to notice that much, but I mean, even on the web, right? I mean, there are there are user experiences that we all hope people conform to, and and if they don't, you know, it kind of feels weird when when you don't. 
uh, but it goes beyond user experience, right? I mean, the, the internet supplies TCP and apply, uh, you know, and UDP, and those ride on a, you know, an, on top of IP, and then on top of TCP and UDP, anything's possible, right? I mean, we see different protocols being implemented on them to meet different kinds of messaging needs. Um, you know, HTTP is very different from SMTP. Uh, two different messaging needs, but yet they all have something in common, right? They We don't have a, a mail system that we have to kind of like have some connection to in a, in a HTTP system that we have to have a connection to. We just have an internet connection and both of them ride on top of that. That's the same thing that I think we get out of an identity meta system is, you know, we get a consistent user experience where even though, you know, when I log into Indicio, right? I have a relationship with Indicio that means I do, you know, it has certain attributes and features and, and things. When I log into some other place or when I uh, even, you know, log in is kind of a, a bad word, right? I mean, we all say it, but, you know, it's kind of like in my electric car, I still call it a gas pedal, which is kind of dumb. Um, but, you know, but when I have a relationship with Indicio, I have a relationship with, you know, maybe just you as a person, Sam, and both of those require some sort of identity. And if we have a meta system that, that. Well, technically everything. Am I muted? What's that? No, you're not muted. Oh. Oh, so we have a meta system that makes that experience, you know, not just the user experience, but the developer experience is, is able to support different kinds of messaging. Now we can build identity systems that are fit for purpose without having, um, you know, the, the problems that having a million different identity systems would, would provide. That's kind of exciting to me. Uh, when you think about the internet, um, and the ability to invent new stuff on top of it without having to go all the way down and invent the stuff that the internet already provides, right? The the meta system provides a foundation already. Um, I remember the first really new thing in my brain that lodged that way was um, was the, the the messenger the messaging program ICQ, which was forever mm -hmm. old, right? Um, but that was the first one that uh, that actually showed the other person typing. I mean, approximately, because it yeah. would stream the the keystrokes, right? And that was that was like revolutionary at the time, and it and it and it uh, it was the first time I realized that the internet was way more flexible and powerful than the things that I had seen that far. Yeah. And so, um, I, I, anyone who's a developer has had the experience where you build some system, you build some some system online, and you have to solve the user login problem. Now, I agree that login is a poor name for what's fundamentally like reconnecting a relationship, but that's what we use. And, and, it, and, and I've had to do it um, in several times in the knowledge that I was building a bad system, right? I know this is flawed. I know it has issues there, I, but, but I, I didn't yet have a meta system that I could lean on that gave me those powerful things. I lean on a little, right? I mean, uh, it, it became a, a pretty obvious um, with, you know, not too far in that an email address turns out to be an excellent username because not only could you prove ownership of it by sending a, a magic link, um, but you could also communicate through it. And so that, that ends up being a really useful identifier because it's not just a unique identifier, but one that's actually capable. And so I had that kind of, but I think calling email addresses a meta system is, is way too strong for what it is. And I'm excited by the potential of having a better understanding of what a meta system could be so that when we start to have to solve these problems as you know as developers or companies that we can actually start from someplace better right this would be a whole different world if we all had to go re reinvent udp before we, we before we got going on things yeah um so i really appreciate that yeah i mean there's there's a the meta system provides a lot of scaffolding which developers can use to do it right without having to think through all of the details, which is which is a huge advantage, right? I mean, if the internet didn't exist, if TCP didn't exist, and everybody has essentially had to go down to, you know, exchanging packets over, you know, opt optical fiber, I mean, that, that would be, we wouldn't build very many things, right? We'd, we'd, we'd be always reinventing that thing. You know, I think that, you know, 
the the idea of metasystems. I mean, I, I should I should be more specific. I think when we talk about identity metasystems, you can imagine different ways of doing it, but the way that um, has become um, or, or I guess become popular is maybe not the right word, but the way we're we're kind of thinking about it right now is that the verifiable credential is a meta system, right? Because I can create credentials for lots of different things. They're quite flexible. Now we might find things we don't want to use credentials for, but for the most part, credentials are providing us with a pretty nice uh, set of packets, if you will, similar to what TCP does. Right. And, and if you can fit your stuff on top of verifiable credentials, there's just a whole lot of scaffolding underneath you that suddenly you don't have to worry about. It. Somebody else is worried about it. You know, and it's early days and there are different credential types. And, yeah, I mean, all those problems. And, you know, I'm hopeful that something um, something will, you know, we'll get to a place where where those things converge a little bit because, that's really the point of the meta system is that we can all talk to each other and without having to have lots of new infrastructure every time. But when I talk meta system, I'm really talking about verifiable credentials from my experience and what I talk about in the book. Would you include uh, DIDs as part of that or is I that would. independent? Yeah, I, I would. I kind of, I kind of left them out. I mean, I think that, you know, we can imagine doing verifiable credentials different ways. People do them different ways. I mean, OpenID for VC, for example, you know, isn't using DIDCOM. So you can't imagine doing credentials those different ways. And it's possible that, you know, we'll find different ways of doing it. I, however, do take the position in the book that DIDCOM is something magical. And even though DIDCOM isn't specifically an identity system, it is enabled by um, an identity system in the play in the, you know that's what dids are essentially is an identity system um not as you know kind of a kind of the ip to verifiable credentials tcp if you will right um so yeah i i include dids in there that's what i think is great and really just because i think didcom is so uh incredibly capable and um you know i like to tell people that if you start getting into verifiable credentials and start thinking about all the possible ways you could use them, you'll be blown away. And then when you think about DIDCOM, it's just orders of magnitude bigger, right? I mean, I think it really does change fundamentally the way we work online. So but yeah, I would include DIDCOM in that. I tend to bundle uh, DIDs, verifiable credentials and DIDCOM as, uh, as the trifecta of awesome. They, they each play a different role uh, and, and making that uh, happen, but but it's it's pretty powerful. Um, this conversation about the meta system, and I realize that there's a timeline to you writing the book, and now it's like published, right? But but like life marches on. There's a there's a discussion happening in the in, in the Trust of RP uh, Foundation about their trust spanning protocol and what that is, and uh, in, in debates about what ought to be included in there. And in our conversation, I think it, it becomes a little more clear in my brain that. Um, when you have perfect foresight, which we rarely do, um, understanding what ought to be included in sort of the meta system foundational components and what ought to be left out is actually relatively important. Um, mm -hmm. For example, um, a lot of the flexibility uh, on the internet as a, meta, as a communication meta system has come from the fact that largely the transfer mechanism moving packets around doesn't actually care what's in the packets which means if you shove something new into a packet, it doesn't like break everything, right? It still works, the packet still gets to its destination. And the fact that you're passing something new is powerful. So to apply that to, to uh, an identity meta system, uh, coming up with the right balance of just enough, but not too much uh, support for what can happen on top of the identity meta system is pretty important because we don't, it's really hard to predict what we're going to do with identity next year or let alone three or four years from now. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different time frame. Yeah. And so, excuse me, let me turn this off. I'm, I, I put my, my main machine on 
do not disturb but i didn't put this one on do not disturb so we've got two different computers here sorry about that no worries at all um and so it's it's interesting uh it's interesting to, to to think about how we can be kind to our future selves such that we don't over prescribe how things might be used in the yeah. future yeah i think you know as you were saying that i was thinking about the internet and how you know we often say the internet was designed without an identity system and and there are various historical reasons for that, but it was also designed without encryption, really. I mean, there's really no confidentiality of packets implied in TCP or UDP at all. Um, and, you know, if they had tried to solve that problem way back in the you know late 70s, early 80s, they likely would have done it wrong because they didn't have the cryptographic tools that have been developed over the last... 50 years, and they might not have ever gotten anything off the ground or had anything, right? I mean, the, the internet, TCP IP is really good enough for what it had to do. And so amazing compared to everything that was happening around it, um, even with all its flaws that eventually it won. And so I think you're right. I mean, picking what to leave out is important because that's what makes what we're trying to do right now doable. And, you know, we like to try and solve all the problems, but sometimes we have to say, you know, that's a problem for another day. <laughs> right. Um, uh, absolutely. Uh, so um, it's really good conversations about metasystems. Um, in your book, to, to change gears just a little bit, you talk about governance in, in, in multiple times and in multiple ways. Um, why is governance so important in, in, in digital identity? Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned the trust over IP framework because I, uh, I I actually um, break that down a little bit more than I think is commonly done. Uh, I like to think of all of the things that we can know cryptographically as inspiring confidence, not trust. And the difference between confidence and trust is trust is a place where you are vulnerable, where you've put yourself at risk, where you're depending on the actions of someone else in order for the right outcome to occur. Um, you know, that's trust. Confidence, on the other hand, is knowing that something's going to happen, right? And so, you know, if you think about, let's go back to, you know, the, the idea of verifiable credentials. Um, Cryptography can tell us things like this credential hasn't been revoked. It hasn't been tampered with. It was issued to the person who's presenting it, and it contains the identifier for the issuer. What it can't tell you is whether or not the issuer has any business issuing that credential, whether the attributes in it have anything to do with the individual that, that is you know, presenting it. You, I mean, you know, I, I could be an issuer and I could create all kinds of credentials. And, you know, I could say, you know, Sam, you know, is a qualified investor, um, whether, whether or not you are, right? I mean, I just stand something up and say, yes, this is, this is, uh, this is fine. And, but why would anyone believe me? That's where governance comes in. So one of the examples I like to use, probably because I'm most familiar with it, is when you get a university degree, right? um, one of the reasons why we trust a university degree is because we can check and know whether or not the university is credentialed, right? Whether it has the proper credentials in order to issue um, degrees. And in fact, that goes even down lower, right? It's not just the university, right? The computer science department is accredited by the Association of Computing Machinery, um, ACM, right? And so, you know, when, when I say, oh, Sam Curran has a degree from Brigham Young University in computer science, I can go check all of that and know that if BYU tells me this, that I should believe it. And I should know exactly what that means. Not just that it's true, but that what did the computer science degree entail, right? What was, what was part of that? All of that is based on governance, right? The governance authority for Brigham Young University is the Northwest Association of Colleges and Universities. Different universities have different accrediting bodies, but 
you know, if I want to know if BYU is an accredited university, I can go ask them. And they say, yes, they are. And, you know, same thing's true of banks, right? We have, you know, accrediting agencies for banks. We may not call them that, right? We might call them bureaucracies that are regulating the bank. But nevertheless, that's part of what gives us confidence that when we give the bank money, right, we can trust them to, to do this. So governance is what allows us to do that, right? I mean, governance says, what are the rules for becoming an accredited university or a federally chartered bank, right? Those rules have nothing to do with technology, or at least very little to do with technology. They're almost all about how humans decide to interact with each other, and that's governance. So yeah, I talk a lot about governance because identity doesn't just depend on confidence. It also depends on being able to trust that the information in the that you're getting from the identity system, whether it's verifiable credentials or not, is something you should trust. Can I make myself vulnerable for this? So your your uh, difference between trust and confidence is something I'm going to be thinking about for a couple of days. But I like how you applied confidence to the cryptographic aspects of credentials and trust to the human aspect of credentials. Yeah. Because you're right, you don't make yourself vulnerable by checking the cryptography, um, but uh, but but it, it tells you something without you you know being placed in, in that position. But if you're going to make a decision based on the credentials, now that's trust because you, there, there's some liability, there's some, there's some difference uh, you know, that, that you're extending um, as a result of trusting that credential, um, which, uh, which um, yeah. Yeah, that's, so the that's a really good that. distinction. I've called it cryptographic trust before, but I think that's inappropriate. I think that cryptographic yeah. confidence is much more accurate. So, so I got that, I got that, um, that distinction from a paper, um, well, now I'm going to forget her name. The Philip is her last name. She used to be at the Berkman Center. I don't think she is anymore. Anyway, she has a great paper about the difference between confidence and trust that I reference in the book, and I'd I'd um, I'd uh, recommend people go and look at. Um, in the chat, someone asked, "Can governance be consensus based?" And I think absolutely. I mean, there's it, we tend to think of governance as just about um, j just about you know some rulemaking authority or some regulatory agency, and indeed that's how we do governance a lot of the time. But you know we can get governance from a market mechanism, for example, uh, and that's just as valid in terms of governance as you know something that comes from some you know cloistered group of experts who you know sit in a dark room and you know make decisions about things so so yeah it can absolutely be consensus based uh and it doesn't have to be rooted in a governance body it can be rooted in a network uh interaction or or anything else uh, so so yeah that's absolutely true so let's draw a line between governance and a meta system then because there are some elements of trust that are definitely work well socially, uh, you know, um, uh, e even to the degree of like, am I likely going to enjoy the food at this restaurant? That's that's different than are do they have a health certificate, right? <laughs> they can have a health certificate and still have terrible food. So so gaining some 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 trust like that, um, I think is 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 interesting. But then you also have situations where governments are you know, the ones that hand out driver's licenses, for example, and, and, and that's, uh, and we don't have a good system to do that. And it's unlikely to change in the near term um, to have that happen. So to your point about a meta system, a meta system doesn't require that we all drop what we're doing and, and, and do one thing. The meta system allows for subsystems uh, of, of governance to exist. And if you do the meta system right, it allows for the existence of existing authorities like governments, also social governance uh, and other sorts of consensus-based things uh, in the same meta-system approach that allows them both to exist without requiring everyone to act like one or everyone to act like the other. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, you know, the because the meta-system you know supplies certain constraints around how things work and what can be done from a technical standpoint that I think makes the the process of governance um, 
maybe not easier, but at least more easy to understand and to 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 trust. I mean, to use that word, right? Because now we know there's a clear distinction between things. Um, you know, one thing I should point out is that while I like to make that distinction between confidence and trust, it's also the case that often trust is based on confidence, but then other confidence is based on the trust that we have in something else. I mean, the example there is, you know, I said that confidence can be gained cryptographically, but on the other hand, unless you are a cryptographic expert, most of us trust in a very real sense, right? In the sense I'm using that word, most of us trust that the cryptographic algorithms we're using have been correctly implemented or, you know, all of these things. So, and are there things we could do to reduce the amount of trust we have to put in those algorithms and gain more confidence? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so, so there's always this kind of stack where, you know, Gaining confidence requires that you trust something which may be based on some other kind of confidence. And so it's not just, oh, the world can be neatly divided into the things that have confidence and the things that trust, and it's just two layers. It's actually multiple layers and or maybe a cycle that goes round and round. If you ignore the details, it's two layers. And if you have to confront the details, it's messy, right? Yes. Um, so definitely some interplay between confidence and trust. I, I really like that. Um, um, it's, it's interesting. So we've had credentials for a while now. Um, and I mean, young in internet years even, uh, but we have verifiable credentials. Um, and, and it's interesting that uh, governance as a topic at IW, uh, for some context, IW is the Internet Identity Workshop held twice a year out in Mountain View, California, um, and in the spring into the fall. And if you haven't attended before and these topics interest you, you should definitely consider attending. If I can plug Phil's conference for him. Um, but I've, I've noticed over the past um, several sessions an increase in the interest in the, the topic of governance as it relates to verifiable credentials. Uh, a couple, even um, maybe three IWs ago, so that's like a year and a half, there was some interest. Uh, and then the, the, the session after that, there was more interest. And then this most previous one, there was a lot of interest um, that, uh, you know, over and over again about solving this fundamental problem of, of why should I trust the issue of a credential to, to boil it down to that specific question. And, and I, I see this uh, continuing to increase, but I feel like we have less experience as a community with understanding governance the way that we understand both, let's say, DIDs and verifiable credentials. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, I mean, the easy answer is that, you know, it kind of goes back to, you know, DIDs and credentials are, you know, technical constructs, and we're all pretty familiar with the technical aspects of it, and it's black and white, right? I mean, you look at the code, and this is how it works, whereas governance is a human process, right? It's a social thing, and, you know, we, we're less comfortable with those social aspects. One of the things I really like about the existence of the Trust Over IP Foundation, even if I might have at times, you know, some disagreement with exactly what they're doing, I mean, I think that idea of, you know, having support, you know, kind of a framework, if you will, for how do we build governance systems is really important. Um, you know, it's also, I think, important to understand that, you know, I, I talked about how governance can be, you know, a, a consensus system or a market or, or something like that. But it's also good to note that, you know, there's no one size fits all. My contention is that every relationship, as I said before, is different and therefore requires its own identity system. And, you know, that that implies that there is governance required for each and every identity system that gets built. However, if you think about, let's say that I work for the local grocery store and the grocery store says, oh, we want to use verifiable credentials to provide our customers with a loyalty program. Great. What kind of governance is needed? Well, probably nothing more than the ad hoc governance of whoever is deciding how the loyalty program works, right? That's probably all that's needed because it's almost completely internal. Although there's nothing that would keep me from showing my Harman's verifiable credential when I go to Macy's, right? There's... I mean, may, and they might give me a discount. They might say, oh, if you're a Harman's loyalty program 
we'll give you, you know, something so that you shop at Macy's. I mean, you could imagine this happening, but but the governance is probably ad hoc and it doesn't need to be anything more than that. On the other hand, right, if we're talking about the governance of verifiable credentials for making large bank transfers, then the governance might be very, very, um, very, very, very uh, strict, uh, might be very bureaucratic. Uh, you know, the best example of that is Visa and MasterCard are essentially, um, they have technology, right? They say what the technology is, but they also have governance, right? And that's really what makes them work. The secret to Visa and MasterCard is that they are governance organizations. And that's why when I walk into a you know, shop um, in London and hand them a Visa card from the United States, they have no doubt believing that they're going to get their money, right? They, they trust that they will get their money. Now, it's true that the banks could default on that, but the penalties for that are very severe, right? So everybody, I mean, bordering on confidence, right, that, that you will get paid because, because of the governance and what it provides. So you point out something that I think is important. Governance is a thing we already have today. Right. We already do governance. Lots of organizations do governance. Governments, of course, do governance. Um, and, and what we're talking about here applied to digital identity is how we apply that governance to digital identity. So it isn't necessarily establishing new authorities, but more about how to uh, create the, the, the mechanism that allows governance that we have today and hopefully maybe some new mechanisms we don't really have today because they're semi impractical without digital help um, to apply to digital identity. So it's not that like we're the first people to think of governance. No, no, it's existed oh. a long time, but but it certainly applies differently to digital identity than uh, than it does into the, the analog world. But, you know, I think what's interesting about what you just said, Sam, is that um, we're also not the first people to think about credentials. I mean, credentials have existed for hundreds of years, right? And because credentials existed for hundreds of years, people came up with governance bodies to manage how those credentials get issued and, you know, provide trust behind the credential, uh, you know, everything from wax seals in the early days to, you know, the accrediting bodies I was just talking about. And you're right. I mean, no one needs to come up with a new system for accrediting universities. The system that exists for accrediting universities simply has to say, okay, here's how we're going to use verifiable credentials and come up with their rules for how that fits into their existing governance framework. So, so yeah, you know, sometimes people say, oh, all this governance sounds like it's just completely over the top. I don't know how we'll ever do it. Well, we've been doing it for hundreds of years and a lot of the things we want to govern, in a, I mean, in a verifiable credential sense, already have some governing body. Right. So we need to empower the parties that exist in those cases um, and, and, and help them step into this world. Uh, not necessarily we're not creating something new. And occasionally folks uh, in conversation have been have gotten confused about that. So in a minute, we need to hand over some time to Heather, not to Heather, to Helen for the uh, for the, the book process um, for those that are interested in reading uh, the concepts that we've been talking about. But just prior to that, Phil, um, I want to ask you what this book is not necessarily pointed to normal people and by normal people i mean like my mother right it's unlikely that my mother's going to run into this uh and and buy it and then be wholesale engaged in it you might enjoy the preface the first chapter <laughs> and the second chapter right After that, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it ramps up right but if you were going to speak to everyday folks what is one thing that you wish everyday folks could understand about digital identity um I, I think, you know, the first thing that springs to mind is that everything they know about digital identity is probably is probably not wrong, but just so much worse an experience than it has to be, right? That they could be having much better experiences. I think the second thing I wish just almost everybody understood is that digital identity is a lot harder than it looks. You know, because we, we all see people just springing up everywhere thinking, oh, I have the solution to the digital identity problem. Usually that solution includes a universal identifier and some sort of biometric to tie that universal identifier to a body. 
literally to a body, right? Um, and you know that my you know I, I like to say that universal identifiers are a 20th century technology that we have no business bringing into the 21st um, because there's just so many privacy and other problems with those. So so I think you know those are the things I wish people understood is that you know it's not oh leave it to the experts but it's there's a lot of nuance here and you know if you're going to dive into digital identity you probably ought to you know become educated about what all that nuance is absolutely okay helen i think you need to share a url is that correct for the for the book draw how's this going to work absolutely i'm going to put it in the chat right now and if anybody would like to opt in to enter, all you have to do is give me your name. You don't have to give me your email because I'll just let you contact me when you want to collect your book because <laughs> I don't want to collect any PII on the call. <laughs> so not responsible for that. Someday we can do this with verifiable credentials, I'm sure. But um, here's the link. It's in the chat. Please go ahead and pop your name uh, in there. And then um, I have a handy dandy uh number generator that will select numbers once people get populated there so yeah if you guys want to keep going for we'll leave it open for about five minutes just for people to um uh enter <laughs> yep in the meantime i i, I have been semi watching the chat but not in, in in super uh depth is there does anyone have a question for phil um in the in the in the meantime while we're while we're waiting for the book process We've got one hand raised. Oh, I am not looking for hands. I was looking for chat. That's better. Me Novak. Go ahead. <laughs> hey Sam, this is Michael Novak. Me is my uh oh, gnome sorry. to zoom. <laughs> yeah. My gnome to zoom. Perfect. Um, so yeah, I've started reading the book. I admit I haven't got to the climax in the fourth and fifth chapters, Phil, but uh I'm looking forward to it. My question is having to do with the identities for not for non-people things, my car, my inanimate object, my wearable, et cetera. What's your prophecy for the adoption of verifiable credentials for non-human entities? So so I have a chapter in the book about um, SSIOT, I call it, Self-Sovereign Internet of Things. Um, yeah, I need that book now. That's why I don't have that chapter. And that, and you know, the, the point that I, that I try to make there is that there's lots of use cases inside IoT where verifiable credentials and especially DIDCOM and DIDS have a role to play. Um, you know, everything from, you know, if you think about the the, you know, going all going all the way to you know, where where you might take it. You know, I talk about um, using the thing as the intermediary in a customer service interaction. And, you know, having the thing essentially as a standalone agent, although under your control, obviously, because things can't be autonomous, at least not yet, um, they, you know, that that it could essentially engage with customer service and only bother you when it actually needed something that you could provide. You know, and that's a, you know, that could be verifiable credentials there that it's using to to pass that information. So, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for. Uh, SSI in the Internet of Things space. I, I have a comment there. Anyone that's dealt with an HP printer recently, and uh, they they deployed some firmware which made the printer inoperable. Uh, even if it had a scanner, you can't scan unless you had blessed HP ink in there. And as a somewhat of a cheapskate, I I ran into this problem and uh, and and the internet delivers and and, uh, and there were instructions on how to downgrade your printer's firmware to the release just prior to that change. <laughs> so so to the point that this has to be under our control and and managed in in a more appropriate way. I I, I look forward to such a better future. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great point, Sam. So if you you know one of the things I I point out early in the chapter on S, on IoT is that your current relationship with the Internet of Things is really very CompuServe, right? I call it the CompuServe of things, because in fact, I in order to in order to use my Fitbit, for example, I have to create an account at Fitbit, 
And my Fitbit doesn't send my data to me. It sends my data to Fitbit, where Fitbit then stores it, provides a service. I mean, I'm, you know, it's all fine. And, and then my app only talks to their API, right? And if, if they decide that I don't need an account anymore, or don't deserve an account, my Fitbit is now just a, you know, uh, useless piece of plastic, right? That doesn't do anything for me. Whereas you can imagine a different model where the Fitbit actually connects to you, you know, using Didcom, right? One of your agents, and then you authorize the Fitbit um, API to have access to what your Fitbit's providing. And, you know, your app is actually talking to you, not to Fitbit. So you can imagine different models which behave exactly the same way from the user's perspective, but also put the user more in control. Uh, Sam will know this and a few others, but uh, almost 10 years ago now, I had a connected car product called Fuse. And, uh, you know, I'm not a very good business person. My, my, you know, my, my real goal was to prove that I could build an Internet of Things product that looked just like every other Internet of Things product, but actually put all of the data under the user's control. Oh, there's there's Roy showing his Fuse device. Roy's got one on his desk. <laughs> nice. I've thought about reviving it. I've thought about trying to figure out if I could make it work again. But anyway. <laughs> Indeed. I um I, I look forward to the day when the, the data passes through, uh, you know, or or the other thing that happens, like Erlo mentioned cameras that they're end of lifing or or, or the um uh, or, you know, whatever product you use gets bought by, you know, Meta Alpha Google's on and then they um, and then and then they decide that they want to discontinue it because of whatever reasons. And and now you have something that works perfectly fine and now doesn't anymore because of some company political decision. And that's that's really frustrating. Right. And so I, I look for that. All companies eventually fail. Yes, which means if you want it to last, you've got to make sure that it actually doesn't rely on the existence of the company to continue to, to do so, which is which is pretty important. I have light switches in my house that are smart. I, I spent extra for light switches that did not depend on the existence of an internet server to work. They cost more because of interesting weird licensing reasons. It's a whole nother conversation, but, but that was worth it to me to make sure that I, I was not ensuring their future failure. One final plug of, for the day is um, before we say our goodbyes is we are having a webinar on uh, Wednesday, March 8th about Hyperledger Indie Networks and finding the best one for you and what Indicio has to offer and all kinds of can answer all your questions about Indie Networks um, on that call. So if you'd like to join us, I'll pop that um, link in the chat as well. And now I will toss it back to Sam to wrap us up and um, thank you again. <laughs> Phil, thank you for uh, joining us and for writing the book in the first place. The the writing the book was decidedly harder than joining us, but I'm glad you, you did both. Um, is there any, any parting words you'd like to share with our audience before we're done? Um, I don't think so. Just, you know, keep plugging away. Identity's hard, uh, but I think we're making progress. No. Excellent. Well, thank you for your contribution to the work. And uh, I hope everyone has a fantastic week. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, Alicia.